Our guest now spent the better part of three years documenting the effects of, cla- of the changing planet on the environment, animals and humans. Dynamic Planet is narrated by New Zealand's own Cliff Curtis and it's the latest project from the Dunedin-based Natural History New Zealand. Filmed on all seven continents, it explores the extremes being created by climate change and how different species are being affected, as well as some of the scientific, natural and traditional ways climate challenges can be overcome. The series launched on Neon last week and will come to the Sky Open channel from February 25th. It's been produced by Auckland-based Ben Laurie. It's the latest in a number of daring projects Ben's been involved with, including the memorable award-winning documentary Plane Crash, the biggest stunt ever filmed for TV in which a Boeing passenger jet was deliberately crashed to the ground. I'm sure we'll discuss. Ben's in the Tamaki Makoto Auckland studio. Kia ora, Ben. Thanks very much for being with us. Kia ora. This was one hell of a project, size-wise, scale-wise. Yeah, absolutely epic project to be involved with and, um, you know, a real privilege to be able to tell some of these stories. Like you said in your introduction, these were filmed all around the world on all seven continents, three years in the making. Um, you know, we came back having filmed 30 different stories worldwide, um, 650 hours of footage filmed. Um, and the goal really is to take the audience out into the world to look at the changes that have been happening and will continue happening as the world warms. Um, but it's, you know, it's um, very different from what you might expect from a run-of-the-mill climate change show. This isn't all smoking chimneys and melting glaciers and doom and gloom. Um, obviously, we reflect the state of the world as it is, but we are on a journey around the world to explore the ways that the world is changing and the way that people are adapting, the way that animals are adapting, and the small things that people can do to protect themselves um, and their environment around them. Uh, You know, that notion that every little bit helps um, is quite um, central to this. I'm interested in 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 the premise because people can be overwhelmed by the realities of climate change, as they perhaps um, ought to be. But I'm interested in, in how you wanted to come at things. There are stories of hope here. There are stories of adaptation. But I couldn't help thinking, even watching some of them, that that's for now. And in many instances, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. Yeah? Absolutely. Um, the, the really big picture stuff will take a global collective effort um, there's a direct correlation between the amount of carbon you put in the atmosphere and how warm the planet gets. And so changing that will change how hot the planet becomes. But in the meantime, everyone can be involved in the process. Um, And our stories around the world reflect that. Um, In in our opening episode um, of our four episodes... Uh, There's a fantastic story filmed in Ladakh in northern India following a group of people, uh, farmers, in the high-altitude desert uh, in the Himalayas where 
traditionally for, for centuries, the farming communities have been reliant on the meltwater coming from the glaciers to um, nourish their crops in the spring and summer. And as the glaciers are melting, there's less and less water available for them. So they've taken, upon it, they've taken it upon themselves to create their own artificial glacier. So they're kind of going up into the mountains in the dead of night and spraying water that freezes in this huge, beautiful, they call it an ice stupa. It looks like a, a stupa, kind of a Buddhist shrine um, that are uh, kind of common in the area. And um, that will melt over the course of the summer, providing them with water for their crops. So it's a small-scale look at how people are adapting their own environment to protect themselves. Um, yeah, It's uh, interesting. There was another uh, um, episode where the tradition of indigenous fire burning is, is returning. It had been banned in one state, and, and, and we know this is long a practice to control undergrowth, a, a, a knowledge base that goes back you know, hundreds of years or more, thousands of years potentially, uh, to control undergrowth. Tell us a little bit more about that, where a traditional practice is now actually being returned to, having been banned by, I presume, authorities who thought they knew better. Yeah, so that's in our um, second film. We've got four films in the series, and our second one is called Fire, but broadly it's about not just the warming planet, but the ways that um, uh, drought uh, and water shortages affect us. Um, but in this sequence, we're looking at um, fire and the way that fire can be used for good. Um, so we filmed with the Yurok um, community, Native American community uh, in California. And for centuries, they have control, uh, done controlled burns of their forest to take out the underbrush and... Uh, create space for new life to come through and also to prevent against destructive forest fires coming through. Um, and as that part of the world's got warmer, the uh, instance of forest fires has increased. And over the last century, there's been a real kind of clampdown on burning. It's just not been allowed. And so all the leaf litters built up in the forests and there have been, I mean, it's been on the news here, there have been kind of catastrophic forest fires sweeping up that coast. So it's one of those really interesting um, stories for us where traditional knowledge, once repressed, as you say, has come to the forefront. And it's something that we reflect across the series. There's this um, wonderful notion, um, it's called the, the idea of braided rivers, where um, you, know, you get these kind of mountain streams, for example, coming down from the southern Alps and they flow out onto the Canterbury Plains and they spread out into multiple channels. Uh, they're all going the same direction, but they're not kind of flowing into each other. And you can think of it a bit like knowledge. You've got the scientific community who are flowing in the same direction. But the indigenous knowledge and the scientific knowledge isn't necessarily, or to date, hasn't always been overlapping. And there's, they're, they're mutually beneficial. Um, so that's something that um, we really wanted to reflect in this series, how this deep-seated traditional knowledge, which often comes from places where science has really, in its modern form, only been going for the last 50, 100 years. You've got this um, indigenous knowledge that long predates a scientific understanding of an area and can be really valuable in terms of helping protect the environment. The animal adaptation was another example, although, again, every time I watched this, I first marvel at what all animals do to adapt to a changing habitat, and then I thought, yes, but how long? How long? Um, so forgive me. 
me, and I'm sure this went through your minds as you were making it as well, but tell us about what the polar bears were changing in terms of their group behaviour. Yeah, so this is an absolutely amazing story that we filmed in Canada, in the Arctic north of Canada. And um, it's a group of bears that over time have adapted to um, the changing conditions. And they have learned to hunt beluga whales, these beautiful big white beluga whales that come into uh, a kind of enclosed bay. And um, for the first time ever, we've filmed new behaviour in this bear community where female bears are teaching their cubs to hunt beluga whales. And basically what they're doing, they're standing up on these rocks and then dive bombing into the water and catching the whales. Um, so it's an amazing um, hunting sequence that we've captured and it's in our first episode. Um, but you're right. I mean, these kind of adaptations to change are possible amongst some animal communities but not all polar bears, for example, have the perfect natural environment, um, in this case, uh, rocks that protrude out of the water for them to hunt from. So this group of polar bears, they might be fine, but other groups of polar bears, I think, um, are going to struggle as they lose the pack ice that they rely upon for their hunting. How do you even begin on a project of this ambition, seven different continents and you know, a, a really sort of broad opening thesis. How, how do you focus on what you want to do and how? So this project is broken down. Um, I mentioned our fire episode, but each of the other episodes are kind of a little bit thematic. So our first episode looks at the world of ice and um, changing conditions, not just in the Arctic and Antarctic, but also in the Himalaya uh, Himalayan regions where the glaciers are melting um, and then our third episode looks at water generally um, the oceans um, while our last episode looks at biodiversity and often we're filming in jungle parts of the, the world we've got a fantastic sequence in the Amazon um, with a Surui Indian community um, in a very very remote um, area um, so in in creating these kind of themes for each episode, we immediately give ourselves uh, a, a kind of story for each film. And then we populate that film with the three key areas that we explore in the series. So the natural world, scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge. So um, from the outset, we try to give ourselves a structure and then find stories that will fit within that. I, I mentioned um, I, I mentioned that there's a sense of, of people and animals adapting, but but for now, uh, and obviously look, there was another example, for example of the of the Greek marathon runner, um, which of course is uh, genius, isn't it? <laughs> the origins of the ma of the marathon, but mm. you know, looking up and saying my city Athens is one of those cities that won't be able to host the Summer Olympic Games in a few decades' time. He has to train in the early morning and late at night because of the heat. And the endurance athletes simply won't be, the, the human body won't be able to function this way in, in, in that heat. Um, so again, is this, was there a sense of trying to give people hope for now, trying to give people agency for now, or using this as another way to communicate the, tra the tra trajectory that we are on, Ben? 
It's a bit of both, actually. That um, marathon runner in Athens is a really good example. That's the opening sequence in our FIRE programme. And it's, it's counterintuitive in a way. You don't normally, well, you wouldn't expect to turn on a climate change show and see a guy running around the city streets at night. It's a really beautifully filmed sequence of him training at night time. And it's a really simple message that comes from him, you know, it's, it's those changes that are happening in the world have consequences that you perhaps might not expect. Who'd have thought that the city where the Olympic Games was born might one day be too hot to hold the Olympic Games? And so we try to find stories that just make the audience think. Um, and there's not much more of a message to that particular sequence than that. It just makes you think. But at the same time, like you say, people, we do try to give people kind of agency to to understand that they can have an impact in their in their surroundings. There's a fantastic sequence in um, the very beginning of our third episode, the water episode that looks at the oceans, um, which we filmed with the Comcac uh, indigenous uh, people in northwestern Mexico. And it's a very, very poor community. Um, uh, you know, they, they don't have the resources, they don't have a kind of traditional Western education or anything like that, but they're getting themselves organised to set up a programme to protect sea turtles from the changing uh, conditions that come with a warmer planet. And so there's this beautiful story um, filmed by a, a New Zealand director. Nearly all our sequences are shot um, by, you know, it's Kiwi Project through and through. Um, and it's this fantastic story of the people in this poor community coming together to protect these turtles, beautiful little baby turtles. It's um, it's interesting. Also, there's only so much, as I said, that, that people can absorb about this uh, issue, and so again, we get these interesting stories. We see the agency of of mainly indigenous communities and often uh, poorer communities making the changes that will sustain them for now, uh, and animals doing the same. But then you find yourself in the um, glacier caves in episode one again. Uh, and um, I think this is up uh, in the Himalayas. Um, actually, it was the testing the thickness of the ice under mountains uh, at Everest. And what was that revealing, Ben, about what is happening to, in this instance, um, regionally pivotal supply of ice and ultimately water? What was being learned? Well, ultimately, this is one of the really big stories and it's it's one of the forgotten stories in a way or a story that doesn't receive substantial coverage when people talk about climate change you know we hear about melting ice caps and we hear about rising seas or we hear about um, greater uh, frosty of storms and things like that but uh, in the Himalayas there are many many glaciers which provide water I mentioned earlier the guys trying to build a kind of artificial glacier to to um, see off a water shortage. Um, but the glaciers there provide water not just to the local people, but downstream, many of the great, great rivers of Southeast Asia, you know, the Yangtze, the Yellow River, the uh, Brahmaputra, the Ganges, they all have their source in the Himalayas. And a billion people are reliant in some way or other on the water that comes from the Himalayas, from the glaciers. And so the loss of the glaciers potentially has, uh, has, has the potential to have quite significant effects in the future. And what's happening is the glaciers 
are essentially melting from the inside out. We filmed a very, very dramatic sequence with a glaciologist uh, going inside the glaciers in these kind of uh, beautiful but dangerous ice caves. And um, he describes them as, as being a bit like Swiss cheese, you know, with all the kind of holes and tunnels through it. And um, they're basically collapsing in on themselves. So it's, um, it's, quite, a sobering, it's quite a sobering story. We mentioned the indigenous knowledge and solutions being used in many communities, uh, but also here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, Ramari Stewart, who's looking for humpback whales and is one of the few Maori whale riders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is one of my favourite sequences in the series, and we're really proud to have been able to film this in New Zealand. Obviously, it's a globetrotting series, Um, but we wanted to uh, celebrate our own backyard as well. Um, So Ramari is um, a fantastic contributor. Um, She's a practitioner of Mātauranga Māori, um, a traditional way of looking at the health of entire ecosystems. So she's got this incredible ancestral knowledge that stretches back generations, like I was saying earlier. Um, It's it's knowledge that predates scientific understanding of um, changes in the area. Um, so we explore with her um, the the principles of guardianship of kaitiakatanga and that connection between all living things, um, and it's um, one of the I think it's possibly my favourite sequence in the series because it does bring together those three threads, the three uh, central threads that I was talking about of, of an understanding of science, of um, an appreciation of the natural world and the importance of um, traditional and indigenous knowledge. Um, it brings them all together. So we go on a journey with her out into the sounds looking for humpback whales and we come to understand how the changes there uh, are significant in a, in a way for all of us. Whales, um, it's, it's one of those kind of magical, uh, slightly bizarre um, stories that comes out of um, mm. natural history filmmaking where the, the whales do a poo in the ocean and they mix it all up through the movement of their bodies and that nourishes the plankton, which is so critical in um, drawing down the carbon from our atmosphere. Yes, I was well aware of their um, role, actually, in um, absorbing carbon. I'm just trying to remember that now. The whale poo story is is, uh, is something we have uh, heard of before on, on the programme. But also what you do very cleverly in staying with whales, amazing footage. This is the other thing, Ben, isn't it? You, you've got to keep an audience with you on a subject that's, you know, dragging on many of our spirits, frankly. Um, But you've got to keep your audience with you and then at the same time just show this amazing ecosystem, environment uh, that we we have. And so we go down to um, uh, Antarctica and we see the whales, incredible footage up close, the the whales there. But then we learn about the melting of the ice and how that um, impacts the feed of the krill and of course, the krill is the feed of the whales, and and the, if there's not sufficient feed there, that their, their time in that part of the world will be um, will be limited. They will simply not go there, not my, you know, not migrate there. So we 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 cleverly see from the very smallest to the very largest things, the delicate interconnection of the world we have now, and how that is being threatened. Um, 
what you know just what's involved in the scale of pulling something like this how many hours in the editing booth ben give us an idea because this again is the is the brilliant work that comes out of of natural history in new zealand and just give us an idea of the scale of pairing all this together and bringing pairing it back rather and bringing it together yeah. as four episodes yeah so that's um you know 50 minutes or so per episode, hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage. And like you say, um, you know, some of these stories are, give, are sobering, but at the same time, we wanted to reflect the beauty of the world. So a lot of time and effort was spent getting crews into these incredibly remote places and filming jaw-droppingly beautiful scenery or absolutely amazing animal behavior so we've come back um, editing all this in Dunedin we've come back with hundreds of hours of footage um, 400 million megabytes of data storage required Um, I I actually don't happen to have totted up how many hours in the various editing booths but um, many 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 hours and then it's not just the kind of editing process there's the post-production process there's the narration Um, as you mentioned earlier Cliff Curtis was central to that and he was fantastic to work with Um, so it's it's a really big team effort and it's something really to be proud of that um, a New Zealand company NHNZ is making something like this that's going to be distributed globally. It's a story that is of global standard and for that to be coming out of a New Zealand company is absolutely fantastic. Now we can't finish without talking about another one of your projects which was the deliberate crashing of an aeroplane and the award-winning documentary Plane Crash. This was a Boeing passenger jet that was deliberately crashed to the ground. Someone told me, I, I don't know whether this is truth or fiction, that it was the same plane that had flown Bob Dole around on his ill-fated presidential bid last century it would have been. Is that correct? Yes, it is. You've done your research. It is. <laughs> My colleagues have. <laughs> yeah. um, and what was the purpose of deliberately bringing down a plane like this? Um, it was, well, it's a TV project, so Ultimately, uh, as with Dynamic Planet, uh, this climate change show, it's got to be entertaining and watchable, but there is a, a, it's a documentary, it's a science documentary, so there's um, significant lessons that come from it. Um, in this case, it was an opportunity to do something that nobody had ever done before. Actually, NASA had attempted to crash uh, a, a big jumbo jet sized plane in the 1970s or 60s I think it was and the whole thing had blown up and they didn't get the data they were looking for and um, essentially it was a scientific investigation to find out what actually happens in a plane crash because you can model plane crashes on a computer but that's not actually crashing a plane or you can go to the tragic aftermath of a plane crash and attempt to work out what happened Um, but what we did was Um, got a plane that had reached the end of its life rigged it with sensors and accelerometers and crash test dummies had millions of pounds worth of hardware in there millions of dollars worth of hardware in there and put the thing into the ground in the desert in Mexico big clean up afterwards to return the desert to its pristine state Um, and it makes for absolutely jaw dropping TV but it comes with it lessons about the safety uh, in in aeroplanes. The headline is um, possibly better to sit a little bit further towards the back, as one of the contributors put it. Um, Planes don't reverse into mountains. Um, 
but it was a it was a privilege to work on a yeah. big project like that. I mean, what happened to the nose is particularly disturbing. The other thing I was thinking, though, um, and plane crashes of planes this size, anyway, commercial jets, still fortunately relatively rare. Um, it, it was the fact that it was gliding in. For a moment, you thought it was just going to smoothly land itself. Uh, we should say kudos to the pilot who, having put it on its, um, you know, on its glide path, then parachutes out of the plane. Um, good luck for that for, for, as a day job. But it looks like it's just going to glide and land, and then when it does land, um, no, <laughs> you get a very, very um, different sort of sort of outcome there. Did it? Did it? Was it used by any subsequently to think about design, or, or was it more just about this will be the impact in different parts of the plane for this kind of a crash? Yeah, I mean, it was a controlled crash in that we knew exactly how we wanted it to hit the ground, and so the learnings. Um, would be applicable to similar kinds of crashes. So the lessons learned don't apply to no, any different kind of kinds. play crash. This would be uh, an, an attempted controlled landing, in fact. Yeah, yeah. essentially where uh, and it's the most common kind of crash. Mm. Um, but there, there were some interesting things that came out of it about um, the amount of cabling in planes. A lot of the kind of ceilings fell down and there was a tangle of cabling that possibly makes it harder for people to exit the plane. Um, so um, it, it was definitely a, a beneficial project in that sense. And you only have one plane to play with as well, of course, one shot. Thank you, Ben Laurie. And just uh, reminding you, we've been talking about Dynamic Planet, which is the latest project out of Natural History New Zealand. You can see it on Neon now if you subscribe, and it'll be on the Sky Open channel weekly at 7.30pm from Sunday, February 25th.